I get calls maybe every week from law school students, from lawyers, from law professors who want to talk through issues that are coming up in their own lives that they may have been referred to me from a friend or they've read something that I've written. And so it's gone from being this thing, but I felt like I couldn't openly talk about it to knowledge that has helped me really assist others and been a a path that I was somewhat forced into, but one that's ultimately incredibly rewarding. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we will look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal profession, and occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we learned, and what we're still learning. John? October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, which commemorates the many and varied contributions of people with disabilities to America's workplaces and economy. In honor of this month, in today's episode, we will be discussing disability representation in the legal profession, the obstacles faced by lawyers with disabilities and what the legal industry can do to better foster work environments that encourage and accommodate disability diversity. We're incredibly honored to have with us today Professor Catherine McFarland. Kat is currently a law professor at Southern University and a recognized disability rights advocate. She previously worked as an associate at Quinn Emanuel, where she represented plaintiffs in mortgage-backed securities litigation and was lead counsel in a pro bono prisoner civil rights action. She also worked as an assistant corporation counsel in the New York City Law Department, where she was lead counsel in federal civil rights actions. Kat wrote about her experiences with disability and reasonable accommodations in law school and practice as a 2018 writer in residence for Miss JD. She testified in support of a patient safety bill related to biosimilar medication at the Louisiana legislature and participated in a Congressional Arthritis Caucus briefing regarding biosimilars in Washington, D.C. as the panel's sole patient representative. Her healthcare and disability commentary has been featured in Ms. J.D., The Mighty, Creaky Joints, and Bust, as well as several literary journals. Professor McFarlane received her B.A. magna cum laude from Northwestern University and her J.D. cum laude from Loyola Law School, Los Angeles. Kat, it is our distinct pleasure to have you with us today, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, we're, we're thrilled. Um, Kat, we're going to dive into some questions. I'm just going to set the stage a little bit more and build on what John has already laid out for the audience, and then I think we're, you know, we're going to jump in, and you know, just so you're ready, we'll start with your background and, and your path. But before we do that, you know, for the audience, and I think in talking to folks, there's, there's many folks that don't recognize how true a part of inclusion and diversity, uh, the disability 
um, is, and, and I'm glad that we're going to have you to tease that out. But for our audience, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in professional settings, disabled people are one of the most frequently overlooked and discounted categories of professionals, and the legal industry is no exception. The National Association for Law Placement Report on Diversity in U.S. Law Firms, released in February of this year, reports that lawyers with disabilities represents just 0.88% of all attorneys. For the offices and firms reporting this data, disabled partners represented just 0.69% of all partners. Although the presence of individuals with disabilities among law school graduates is not precisely known, other NALP research from the class of 2019 suggests that approximately 4% of graduates self-identify as having a disability. James Leipold, NALP's executive director and a previous guest on The Law in Black and White, has stated attorneys with disabilities could be working at firms in greater numbers than anybody knows, but simply aren't open about it for the fear they might face stigma or discrimination. The unique challenges faced by disabled attorneys in professional settings are varied and dependent on the individual nature of each person's disability. But common obstacles include navigating accommodation request, a pressure to overperform, and a sense of professional and personal isolation from colleagues when events aren't inclusive of disabled attorneys. With this context, we'll finally turn to Kat. Kat, I felt like I was reading uh, everything that we talked about before. Hopefully, we saved something (laughs) uh, for you to to shed light on. that was great. (laughs) um, Sorry. Well, hey, you know, we took a lot of that from you, so you were great, right? I guess to start off, uh, again, maybe you could remind us and and share with the audience your background, um, and then, you know, what was the path to where you are now? Uh, Obviously, your professor, your former law firm associate, but you're also now a recognized disability rights advocate. And I wonder if you could just talk about both the background and then particularly highlight how you've come to this path of shining a light uh, in our sector uh, for the disabled community. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. So I, when I think about my background and how I got to the job I love to becoming a law professor, it's almost as though I have this second resume and CV where I think of all the things I've gone through with my health and my my disability. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was just one. So I've been sick my entire life and I've been quite sick. I've had a ton of surgeries. Uh, I had trouble walking as a child. Um, I've lived in constant pain, but I have also have a really full life. And until about 10 years ago, I did not speak about my health issues and I did not feel comfortable openly identifying as disabled. But the older I got, the more I knew that I was both entitled to accommodations and needed accommodations. So I became the expert in disability law that I am today, sort of because I felt like I had to. I had to learn the law to be able to advocate on my own behalf effectively. And then I enjoyed it. And I loved meeting a community of activists, mostly online, mostly on Twitter, believe it or not, 
Um, and I started to learn the language. So, that so you're that I one use. person on uh, you're <laughs> that one person on Twitter that actually finds it a yeah. useful medium. No, I'm Absolutely. kidding. I'm kidding. Something from Twitter. <laughs> I know. You know, it's it's so interesting because for those of us who have mobility impairments or have access issues online and social media in particular is this place where we always can find each other. So it's been it's been amazing to become aware of activism and to to see social media activism as well. So a, about 10 years ago I started doing some writing, started writing about rheumatoid arthritis, starting to uh, help people advocate for their on their own behalf in healthcare settings and then transitioned into doing a, a little bit of lobbying in connection with patient safety and patient rights. And then in the last few years, I focused more on disability law scholarship and became the chair of the Association of American Law Schools section on disability law. And now I'm at a place where I get calls maybe every week from law school students, from lawyers, from law professors who want to talk through issues that are coming up in their own lives that they may have been referred to me from a friend or they've read something that I've written. And so it's gone from being this thing that I felt, I don't know if I ever felt shame, but I felt like I couldn't openly talk about it to uh, knowledge that has helped me really assist others and motivated me to, to write scholarship that I'm incredibly passionate about. So it's been it's been a, a path that I was somewhat forced into, but one that's ultimately incredibly rewarding. Kat, we, we, we work in a particular profession, which you're familiar in with from the inside out. Brian used the word, you know, facing discrimination. And if we hit this issue uh, head on, I bet you you hear a lot from law firm partners or law firms generally that they don't discriminate. They're just looking for people who can get the job done. We hear that a lot in multiple contexts. Um, if you agree that that's one of the things that has to be overcome, what do you see as the biggest obstacles faced by attorneys with disabilities? And how can law firms take steps to address them? Have we made any progress? Oh, wow. I was kind of chuckling on the inside when <laughs> you were saying that they're, you know, they don't discriminate. I think law firms the big law in particular is so physically exhausting that to the extent you have any kind of physical impairment that counts as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you're going to perhaps bump into a situation where you need a reasonable accommodation. And so for everyone, we should be thinking about the way the practice of law is unnecessarily physically exhausting and physically trying, but often people with disabilities are on the front line saying things like, I need to go to a doctor's appointment on Thursday afternoon. That doesn't mean I come back and work till 11 p.m. We need to think about humane conditions. So I think improving the quality of life for lawyers in general is especially important for people with disabilities, but it helps everyone across the board. People with disabilities are still afraid to disclose in all fields that they are disabled. I think there are incredible stereotypes in law firms that if you are weak in any way, you can't perform your job. And so the numbers that uh, were being shared at the, at the top of this podcast, I think are just extreme undercounts because people don't feel comfortable disclosing even in 
you know, an anonymous survey because one in five Americans are a person with a disability and those people exist in, in law firms as well. So there's, you know, there has to be some sort of fear we're instilling in people. And then also so much networking happens in the law and spaces that are physically inaccessible to people with certain disabilities. So things like golf, I worked at a firm where every year there was this amazing hike, usually out of the country, usually a grueling two days. And people were told that if you wanted to be seriously considered for partner and to bond with the managing partner, you had to go on this hike. Now, I never was able to go because there was it was frowned upon to go just to go to the hotel. Um, so three years in a row, I missed out on this amazing trip. That everyone was going to, and there was there was no thought given to uh, people with disabilities. And then, in addition to that, I I think the workplace in general and law firms in particular don't know how to set up confidential accommodations processes, both at the interview stage and then uh, when people are onboarded and working as employees. It's usually an ad hoc, disorganized process that you may have to negotiate one-on-one with the person that evaluates you for partnership um, as opposed to someone in human resources. So all of those things could be improved. And then a, a simple fix is making sure we audit our physical spaces before anyone with a disability arrives to make sure that at least we have ADA compliance uh, when it comes to structures. I was uh, surprised to read in the background information that federal courts are exempt from the ADA. Is that right? Yes, the federal judiciary is exempt. Uh, So there have been some efforts in connection with the way the federal courts have taken. They've been somewhat responsive to the way the Me Too movement reached (laughs) federal chambers. I'm thinking of the women that spoke out about their experiences in Judge Reinhardt's chambers and Judge Kaczynski's chambers. So employment discrimination issues, at least in the Ninth Circuit, now have an office and an administrator responsible for making the uh, workplace more welcoming. I looked into a few months ago whether there was an accommodations process and what you have to do, at least within the Ninth Circuit, is contact someone, there's no forms available online, and it wasn't clear that someone could ask for accommodations confidentially. So there's no ADA-based accommodation process in the federal courts. This was difficult for me personally uh, when I clerked in the District of Arizona, and then I clerked for the Ninth Circuit in Los Angeles, but my judge was not in Pasadena. He was one of the last judges in the federal courthouse on Spring Street, and there was no parking. And because the ADA was not something I could rely on. I walked in pain, in extreme pain, arrived uh, at work with my knees swollen uh, every day, and there was nothing that anyone could do. And that was (laughs) the compromise that I had to make to have amazing federal clerkships. Uh, And and there was no one I was able to turn to and, and really no one that was that interested in making that workplace accessible to me. I'm going to um, thank you for that. I, I want to um, go back a little bit and build on something that John, you were talking about with the accommodations and review some of the conversation we were having from you know your law firm time. And I think you were conveying to us 
that there's this catch-22 between securing these accommodations uh, and then the exceptional performance that's required. You, know, you had talked about strenuous hours before. And I guess when I think about it and I hear that, it's like, well, you know, it's uh, <laughs> is, is that's kind of the definition of, uh, of a law firm, exceptional performance, long hours, right? So, you know, if, if that is showing up in a different way for the disabled community or even just for you, I wonder, you know, what does that mean? And if I could add a part B, you talked about something which as a leader um, kind of tugs at the heart part of my person, right? So I always think about leadership from head, heart, and hands, and, and, and the heart is this empathy part, uh, our empathy muscle. And you talked about a concept of shame um, and not wanting to disclose uh, at some points. I wondered if you could build on that and just help the audience understand what it's like to navigate that shame to try to get these accommodations and then have to turn in, I don't know, exceptional performance on steroids, if that's even a thing. I am on steroids, so yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So that that uh, I, I that is a thing. Fa- fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. And performing exceptionally, <laughs> right? Thank you. <laughs> so, it, I it's so interesting. I often I am you know a classic overachiever and then some, and I have been my whole life. I think in part because I have always been afraid that I'm going to get a job. And then I'm going to have to have surgery and miss a few days of work. And people are going to think, oh, no, we hired this person who is constantly sick and, and we made a mistake. She's not worth she's not worth it because she has to take these few days off. This has played out in me having like major eye surgery and going back after two days. I had my knee replaced last December and I was on a Zoom call <laughs> interviewing potential team candidates 48 hours later. Uh, because I am so afraid that people are going to regret having me as a colleague. This is particularly acute and a concern when I start a new job. So I consciously, purposefully make sure that I am perceived as the best employee that could possibly, (laughs) uh, the, the best one that there could possibly be. What that means is what it means for everyone, I think. I, but the problem is when I hold myself out there like that, I don't like the standard it sets for other people with disabilities because it has burned out my body. I have paid the price. I have never backed off from exhausting myself. And this is a theme throughout my life. I have just decided that I'm going to overachieve. I'm going to go for everything that I want to do in life. And I'm going to make myself sick in the process. And I never was able to find a way to have the opportunities that I have now um, to publish in the way that I publish as an academic, for example, to teach in the way that I that I teach. I've always taught huge classes, more 1L classes than is common in academia. I I don't know how to work <laughs> in any other way. And it's it's made me sicker. It shouldn't be that hard. Um when it, when it is, comes, Kat, it, yeah, Kat, is that a is that a fair burden? And is that uh, you talked about you know that being intrinsic to you? Yeah, I'm wondering you know the intrinsic lawyers are geared in that way, right? A lot of us. I mean, yeah, you, you, I'll tease John sometimes in you know <laughs> even though he put 40 years in, right? He'll be working at 11 o'clock uh, at night on a brief or something. Um, so there's some that may be inherent to you. How, how much extra, I don't know if it's like a 10, 20% or if you can even characterize it that way, 
that you're saying, okay, I gotta, I gotta just put even more juice on top of the fire because of this disability. So people will not see that. I think I work not at my current job, but at my last job, I probably worked 15 to 20 hours more than peers at my same level. Some of that is gender-based. Some of that is the result of me being the only person who identified as disabled and, you know, dealing with a lot of disabled students who needed uh, mentorship from someone they could identify with. Uh, But as you mentioned, you know, that's not uncommon with lawyers. My close friends work as hard as I do, but the difference is uh, they are not in a great deal of pain or they're not making themselves sick as a result. I haven't found a way to overachieve in the way I want to without feeling sick. And so when I was at when I was at a firm, wh- what would this look like? I would walk from um, <laughs> a building in Midtown to Gramercy Park and go to the NYU Langone Hospital and get a three and a half hour chemo infusion and then walk back to Quinn Emanuel's offices and work until 10 30, 11 o'clock at night to make up for the time I lost. And it was, I was nauseous. I was sick. It was terrible. Uh, but I never felt like there was any other way to, uh, to succeed. And I probably still worked a little bit more than most people on my team. There were, there was one time at Quinn when I was in New York and I was on a team that we were working weekends. And if anyone was taking a weekend day off, we would send out of office messages (laughs) for Saturdays and Sundays. It was ridiculous. So I went to my managing partner and asked for a six week accommodation where I would only work till 8 p.m. and would have Saturday afternoon off. And she said no to that accommodation. She was ultimately overruled by the the partner who managed the office. But part of that was because I was doing good work. Uh, Part of it was was just a cultural inability to imagine even a temporary six-week adjustment that would allow me to get better because in her mind, the compromise was losing those additional hours of work from an associate that she was relying on. So shame. Uh, Shame is... What I feel when I have to explain my pain, it's something that I feel very private about and that I don't really have the words for. It's something that actually is quite lonely because I feel like I experience it in a way that my peers um, don't and, and won't understand. There are aspects of my accommodations that involve things like I need to be close to an accessible restroom that I'm saying out loud, but that I don't want to talk to my employer or the person who evaluates me about. And then I'm constantly having to convince people that I am as disabled as I, as I say I am, because it's this double-edged sword of being so hyper-successful, but also sick enough to need infusions of a chemotherapeutic agent but all people see when they look at me is someone with, I, I look healthy and I, I can walk. And unless I, you know, wince and explain the pain that I'm in with every step, people look at me, see someone who's succeeding and assume that if I ask for something like a disabled parking spot, I must be faking. So it's this, this constant loop of uh, this 
personal experience in my life of dealing with very, very serious health issues and extreme disability, but yet having to uh, prove to people that I'm entitled to very, very basic accommodations and having to provide a, a mountain of paperwork for a disease that I've had for decades <laughs> and that I've, you know, I've, I've talked to a congressional arthritis caucus about, <laughs> but I've had issues getting a keyboard tray at past jobs. Um, so it's, it's a frustrating uh, cycle of sometimes shame and, and disbelief. It, it takes a lot of work to prove myself, I guess, and also just to get simple accommodations. It's interesting to hear you say that, Cap, because it to me it it constantly reminds me of the legal profession's confusion about not wanting to be perceived to be touchy feely mm. in any way, yeah. because it, it, being touchy feely is somehow I don't know what it is, but it's 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 bad in legal jargon. Um, but also having what Brian talks about, which is empathy for others and and, and the ability to actually incorporate and accommodate talent that we otherwise wouldn't benefit from if we just budge a little bit. And um, I think the legal profession is constantly struggling with that and will have to figure out ways to do it if it wants to take advantage of all the talent in the, um, you know, that is available to it going forward. You know, I don't know whether touchy-feely is exactly the, the, the concept behind this, but there is sometimes, I think, a condescending position where law firms will often say, we welcome disabled attorneys and confuse that with uh, actual inclusion, which, by the way, goes beyond disabled people, but, uh, you know, almost any type yeah. of people, um, which is, you know, true inclusion in the firm's sense of community and its networking in the activities you described before with the managing partner all the things that make people feel they're invested in and, and, and belong. So maybe you can comment on that from the perspective of persons with disabilities and how the legal industry might do better in that. So whenever I hear the word welcoming <laughs> as mm -hmm. referring to an environment that wants to be better with respect to people with disabilities, I kind of shake my head because we need to start with legal compliance. We're just nowhere near having a meaningful conversation about being welcoming. And I, you know, people with disabilities, I don't even know if we're interested in empathy. You know, the reasonable accommodation principle is based about, is based on equality. It's a, a radical aspect of a civil rights law, but it's not rooted in understand us more. It's rooted in disability as a social construct. This is the concrete action it takes to remove barriers that shouldn't be there in the first place. And I, I think the problem is we're very set in our ways as lawyers, right? And so one example that I, I like to think of is the way that we require at least in litigation, first year, second year associates to go through that intense one year or one week trial practice. Sometimes it's, you know, sponsored through NIDA where you learn about cross-examination and one afternoon and direct on the other afternoon and then an opening on the third afternoon and then you try a case on Friday. And I bring this up because it's physically exhausting that whole week 
but we love it because it's this hazing that everyone goes through. And at the end of the week, you're supposed to feel like you've accomplished so much. We're mistaking physical exhaustion and physical triumph for intellectual accomplishment. And if we would just think a little bit more about what we actually want to do with an intense week-long moment where we have people in a room and an amount of time to really teach them, take away the physically exhausting aspect of it, rethink it. Also keep in mind what might be better for people with disabilities if we would just divorce ourselves from what we've been doing for, for decades. Something new and innovative, and maybe even more effective uh, might be what we come up with, but we're stubborn, right? And <laughs> we're stubborn with respect to disability. We're stubborn with respect to, to race and gender. Uh, I, I think we know better now. Like we know that to the extent that networking happens in the context of a sport that uh, is typically played by men, then we're creating barriers to networking for women. So I think if we can get in that frame of mind with respect to disability too, we can, we can make some progress. So end of the day, welcoming is not what anyone with disability is really interested in yet. And then we also have to stop othering disability. So all of the conversations about disability have to be had as though there are quite a few people with disabilities in the room. Uh, I've sat in on trainings about disability where the, the images used to represent disability are of children, people with disabilities are very infantilized, and they're spoken of as though they're this mystical, inspiring creature that doesn't exist in reality that, again, we have to be welcoming to. That, as you mentioned, is a patronizing way to speak of people, but it also really outcasts those of us who are present and have something a little bit more <laughs> relevant to say. I know Brian has the last question he'd like to ask, but I just wanted to make one observation about your answer there. My understanding is the medical profession, which had, of course, the same kind of exhausting residency program where I think you earned your stripes by seeing how long you could basically be sleeping on your feet for days on end, has begun to understand that's not necessarily the best way to train a young lawyer. Uh, sorry, a young doctor. And uh, that was just a Freudian slip. <laughs> and <laughs> query whether we need to be doing the same thing. Brian? Yes. Um, I, I I love that observation. You know, thinking back to uh, times uh, in law school, even, you know, though I thought, or sorry, after law school, I had friends that were doing their residency and just brutal. And, and so the, clearly some lessons. Um, you know, maybe the, maybe the last question before we get into everybody's favorite part, which is our pet peeve section uh, segment. We talked about some professionals wanting to keep their disabilities confidential, while others, maybe either because it's uh, apparent or that's just an integral part of their identity, do want to share You've talked about it somewhat, and I think that there's just a compliance, but can you help us maybe understand some, and, and I think what we're really trying to get at is some solutions again, and, and I think you've mentioned some of those as we've gone, but how can firms navigate and corporate legal departments navigate maintaining confidentiality while still allowing the others that choose to uh, share this as a part of their identity? And I think John talked about this and allowing them to be their authentic selves in the workplace. Any ideas that can help our audience on that? 
Yeah, thanks for that question. So I'm someone with a relatively invisible disability, and there are parts of it that I still want to keep to myself, despite all of my <laughs> writing and, and talking about it. So the, the reason that some people want to keep their disability confidential is the fear of discrimination. And then in the workplace, the fear that if people learn that you're getting accommodations, that they presume that you're getting a favor. Unfortunately, we, and so the desire for confidentiality is the desire to uh, not invite that perception that you're being treated with, with kid gloves or, or getting a favor. Many people, as you mentioned, cannot avoid, everyone knows because it's, it's visible that they are disabled. And so to the extent that they want to talk about it, and also people have invisible disabilities, but also want to talk about it, you are, should be guided by the person with disabilities themselves. So occasionally in a law school setting, when it comes to law students, I have seen people tell law school students to stop talking about their disability as though there's something improper about students disclosing. This sometimes happens in the workforce as well that really stigmatizes and demonizes people's disabilities. So just be guided by what the person with disabilities wants to share and be open and be knowledgeable yourself as someone who is in a mentoring position about how to help someone with disabilities. And to the extent that you are in a leadership position in a law firm, you should have people with disabilities that you know of who are willing to mentor young attorneys with disabilities. And that also could be you if you're knowledgeable about disability, but maybe are just an ally and don't have a disability yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. And I, I know after we do our pet peeve section, John and I are going to come back. I think you've given us a lot to, to think about <laughs> and, and put in context. And I think it's very valuable. It's an important conversation. We'll, we'll switch a little bit um, and, and maybe a, a little bit awkward because I think we're coming from something that is, uh, uh, you know, so very serious and important <laughs> to our profession to something that maybe is, um, you know, a little less uh, serious in our pet peeves. So, Kat, <laughs> and we'll start with you. Um, we usually go to this section and uh, we say, share a pet peeve, share something that you can't seem to let go of. Or uh, <laughs> if you don't have one of those, just a funny observation will do. Um, okay. So with that, uh, we audience, we are going to move over to our uh, pet peeve part of the show. And we're going to start with our uh, guest. Okay. It's somewhat disability related. Okay. Everyone is always telling me or asking me if I've tried turmeric as though turmeric is going to <laughs> suddenly cure <laughs> my decades-long chronic autoimmune disease for which I take several very toxic <laughs> medications. So this question, this suggestion happens almost on a weekly basis and the look that people get on their face when they're about to tell me about turmeric. I can I can like see it coming. I can feel it. I have to take a deep breath so that I don't <laughs> start yelling. So I would love it if people would stop recommending turmeric to myself and other people with autoimmune disease because 
it is not going to cure us. <laughs> it, it, you feel the same way about vodka? <laughs> no, that actually is a very, that does cure it. Maybe just for a few hours, but it really helps. <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe you could put that in as a mixer. Maybe you and John have found something, turmeric, uh, uh, vodka, and I don't know if you need some sort of juice in there or something, but I, I hear sounds orange good. juice is good with that. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, whatever <laughs> people think. Uh, uh, John? <laughs> Well, as you know, um, usually I can't come up with a pet peeve, but this is one of those few times when I've been actually looking forward to the pet peeve segment segment of our <laughs> show. Uh, because uh, let me set the stage. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was uh, rushing because my wife was in the car waiting for me, and I was trying to get something quick to eat. And I stopped at a Chipotle, and I ran in. And I said to the very nice, accommodating woman behind the counter, who was serving food to people, can I get an adult-sized quesadilla? Because they have kids' quesadillas on the menu, but I know they have adult-sized quesadillas. And I'm an adult. <laughs> and even though I probably should have eaten the kids-sized quesadilla, <laughs> I, I wanted the adult-sized quesadilla. She said, you can't order that here. You can only order that online. So that's the first thing. Why can you only order it online, oh, no. but not in the place? <laughs> that if they can make it for you, that so that okay. I don't get that. But then she said, "But if you want, you can you can download the Chipotle app, which I have no interest in downloading, um, and order it, and I'll just give it to you." Yeah. <laughs> so said, marketing, you can, they, they walk. They want to be able to push stuff to you. Come back in, and then I'll give it to you. Because <laughs> if this makes sense. So that also was nuts. But then when I tried to do that, it actually somehow Google got control of my attempt to do this and refused to let me do it until I answered a questionnaire that <laughs> I think had about 45 questions associated with it. Do you trust Google to keep your information that you've said to keep private private? No. Next question. Do you think I said, forget it. It's not worth it. <laughs> I'm not going to try to order online to get my my adult-sized quesadilla and answer a 45-question Google questionnaire in order to have the privilege of doing so. Oh, man. So that, that is my pet peeve. And then, by the way, because Google did that and I didn't finish the questionnaire, somehow I lost my Gmail. So... <laughs> The whole thing was a disaster because I couldn't be satisfied with kitty size. Well, I was just going to say, what well, the punchline? Did, did you get a kid uh, quesadilla or two? Maybe that two of them. I stormed out of there. I went to Five Guys and I got a burger. I like Five Guys. Uh, <laughs> the Five Guys spicy fries are so good. Anyway, those those are free promos, by the way. If you want to sponsor the show, you can call <laughs> Megan Smith at uh, Legal Innovators. Um, <laughs> So my pet peeve is a lot more benign. I have to compliment my uh, co-host. That was his best pet peeve. Yeah, that, that was, was actually a real well, pet peeve. I, I don't have any, but this one, this one got to me. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a pet peeve. It's like cluster, you know what, uh, to get some lunch. <laughs> anyway, uh, my, mine will be short, a little bit more benign. Um, I feel this way every year. Um, I, I feel like it's like racing against time to enjoy every minute of the day when summer is becoming fall. I'm just hoping for those just last few warm days, but I guess I've been disabused of that notion when I came in late last night, it was 54 degrees, which is fine, right? And I like the seasons and I like fall too, but 
I was just hoping for a little bit more summer, so my uh, pet peeve well, is a little you whimsical. You live in Washington, Brian. Summer <laughs> is not totally gone. It could be 90 well, in a week. I, I hope so. I'd like to, you know, outside to swim. I don't know. Let, let's just, I'm, I'm hoping for a, a, one more comeback, maybe. <laughs> anyway, Cat. Uh, thank you. I know that we're going to stay in touch with you, not only as an expert in this area um, and as a company that is uh, trying to help the industry drive uh, systemic change in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I think your expertise is appreciated. I know that the audience will appreciate it. Appreciate you for the courage and in, in sharing your story here. Um, and um, Southern, as we said, ha has been a partner school. We look forward to partnering yeah. with you and your chancellor um, and just doing more um, and creating more opportunities uh, kind of uh, in concert with your um, with your leadership. Awesome. Uh, John, I don't know if you have any closing. Oh, please, Kat, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying thank you. This was wonderful. You asked great questions. You're very, you're both, uh, I can tell your allies. So thank you for the thoughtfulness you put into researching disability issues. Well, we, we thank our producers. We are uh, as good as John and I are. Uh, there's a team that is very good, and I will um, acknowledge our, our new uh, coordinator, um, uh, Eliana, um, who is a recent Georgetown graduate, um, oh, actually envisioned the format for, for this podcast, uh, came up with the questions, uh, and I think working um, uh, under the tutelage of our Director of Operations, Megan, and with our producer, Ben, you know, I think helped us have this really important conversation. So we won't keep all the credit for, for ourselves. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We are nothing if not a highly professional team. Great. <laughs> That's right. They drag us kicking and screaming to be professional. I think Sean and I would be <laughs> We fine. may not be dressed that way, but that's why we don't do these by video. video. That's right. All right. Brian, we're we're on a roll. We've had a lot of good guests, yeah, and I thought Cat was terrific. And this is the part of the segment where we um, talk about, you know, what we thought. So why don't you kick it off? What were your observations? Well, um, you know this this won't surprise you or or the audience, right? And I think you you even hit on it a couple of times when we talk about this concept of uh, inclusivity. I think number one. The legal profession, I think, is trying to lean into things and 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 do the right things. I think we still see we have a we have a ways to go, right? And this topic in particular, I think that there's probably some more education uh, and understanding uh, that need to happen. And then the last thing, and I said it, and I and I think you you know you underscored it for the audience, and that was the concept of uh, of of empathy, right? Because like here, and I remember, you know, at Sherman, and I'm sure it's like this at a lot of law firms and corporations, you develop a sense of team or at least camaraderie, right? And it just, it just made me feel, I don't know, compassion maybe to think about that there's this class of, of folks uh, that feel shame um, because of um, some ailment, no fault of their own, uh, that they're carrying around and that that can sometimes push them to feel like they have to overcompensate and work longer than already very long hours, which may exacerbate the underlying problem. So I think I'm still processing, but those are some of the uh, initial takeaways uh, that I had. How about yourself? Well, I thought Kat called me up a little bit on the use of the word empathy. 
um, which I appreciated because I, I understand and I've talked to people who have disabilities in the past who don't want us to feel sympathy. It's not a point of sympathy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not, that's by the way, what I meant mm-hmm. by empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more treat us as equals and we need certain accommodations in order to do the job to our, but we can do the job mm-hmm. as well as anyone else. And I think to the extent anyone is confusing what I know I mean and what I'm sure you mean, Brian, by empathy, we're not talking about sympathy. To me, empathy means first understanding. That's right. There's a there's an issue here that needs to be addressed, and then treating people equally mm-hmm. in a, making accommodations so we can all work off a level playing field. Because leveling the playing field is not showing sympathy. It's recognizing the need in order for people to achieve their full potential, which to me is just a basic right. And it's not even just a matter of whether it's a right. Any employer should want to level the playing field so that people can achieve their full potential. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't, they're cutting off an aspect of the talent pool that it makes no sense to cut off. That's right. So, so I thought I I picked her up on that, and I'm and I was sensitive to that mm-hmm. after she called it out, and and want to be sure people understand. But you know, I I think it's a really interesting subject because I think it's taken for granted. You know, you look at those very small statistics of people who are identifying as having these issues, mm-hmm. and it's easy for an employer to just say it's not a big issue. Well, A, it's a bigger issue than the statistics show, mm-hmm. and B, it's a big issue to the people who are affected by it. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, it is something that I think the the profession, all professions, the legal profession, particularly because of this mentality of we're not touchy-feely, we just need people who can get the job done, uh, we don't discriminate, we just look for people who can do the work, all of those things I think are clouding the issue. And making it more difficult than it needs to be to just include people and and make the accommodations and let them succeed. Yeah, um, I, I think all that is is well said, uh, especially the clarification on the on the point about what we're what we're trying to get at with with empathy. And I think it's almost um, uh, members of this community. And I think Kat was saying this. You know, don't want to be pandered to, even when she focused on the. The language of of firms uh, saying, "Hey, we want to be welcoming," and she was like, "Don't don't be welcoming, be compliant." And I and I thought that that was, uh, I thought that that was uh, well said. All inclusion writ large is about trying to allow people to be their authentic selves. And to your point, if you are your authentic self, um, my judgment, um, you can perform better. Um, and I think that that is uh, what this is about. And the stigma, I think this will be my last point. I think that the stigma um, we've got to, to try to remove. And uh, I know we were we cited a quote and a stat from Jim Leipold, our friend over at NALP. And you remember when we had him on the uh, podcast, he recounted his experience as a summer associate doing good work the whole summer, debating whether, and, you know, a different issue, uh, uh, Jim's was whether he was going to, you know, disclose his, his uh, uh, sexuality or not. And when he finally did, um, and we don't know if this was, you know, the, the, the reason, but he didn't get an offer. And I think as we look at LGBTQ plus statistics, we're reminded that those are probably underreported for the same reason that the disabled uh, community statistics are underreported. So 
Um, I think when we look at the numbers, we have to realize that there's probably you know more there. Well said. Well, we want to express a big thank you to our guest, Catherine Cat, as she gave us permission to call her, McFarlane, for joining us today. And to you, our audience, for listening into the Law in Black and White. We wish everyone who's been listening a happy National Disability Employment Awareness Month. We do want to note that this year, the Office of Disability Employment Policy in the Department of Labor is celebrating its 20 years of helping advance opportunities for working with disabilities across the nation. The theme for NDAM 2021, America's Recovery Powered by Inclusion, reflects the importance of ensuring that people with disabilities have full and total access to employment and community involvement during the national recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find more information about this at www.dol.gov. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can subscribe to our podcasts, and you can follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We're doing a lot of things. We look forward to talking to you next time, and be safe. Thanks, Brian, and we will see everyone soon.